8. And let's just pray before we open the word. Thank you, Father in heaven, for the word that you've given us, the words of life. Thank you that you have showed us yourself through the scriptures. You've revealed your perfect will. You've um, given us promises and warnings and exhortations and commands. And just thank you for how your word is true. And it is alive and active. And it just pierces us, Lord. It shows us our great need to repent, uh, to praise, and to worship you because you are worthy. We thank you for the many blessings you brought into our lives and for allowing us to gather here today. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, fill us with your spirit, give us understanding of these things, and may we rejoice in the comfort that's found in Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's interesting how generation after generation of people um, have lived on the earth, and yet the heart of man is really very much the same. Nothing much has changed, um, and we've benefited by so many, uh, it, let's say, advances, like in technology and medicine and transportation and scientific discovery, but the hearts of men still desire the same things, security and success and prosperity. And uh, we see that with King Saul. It was, uh, so one hundred and so 1010 BC, he's trying to get some help and he begins to offer his men vineyards and houses and promotion. He appeals to their needs and desires. He says, hey, you want to be well fed? You want to be able to provide for your family? You want to be recognized? You want prosperity and success? Help me out. I can do that for you. And so he appeals to that. And and isn't that what appeals to us today? Success prosperity, good health. Um, You Google the Australian dream and you'll see in a text box pop-up a belief that in Australia home ownership can lead to a better life and is an expression of success and security. So there's the Australian dream. You know, having success, having security, having a good investment. Still sounds good to us. After all those years, that's still very appealing. And ultimately, we want the good life on our terms. We want to, um, we want to do what we want when we want. We want to maximize our returns of our effort. We want to acquire, um, to make the most money as easily as possible or painlessly as possible, um, to feel secure and to have good health and ensure good quality of life, right? Those are things that we value as people. But, And there's nothing wrong with a life marked with prosperity and success. These are all gifts from God. But God's perspective of what success and prosperity is, it's very different definition than what we see in the world. It's not about acquiring stuff or about promotion or being applauded by men. But a prosperous life, it is one that a person looks to the Lord and lives according to his word and delights in the Lord. That's when you find the desires of your heart met. Because the things that we try to fill those desires with, they don't satisfy. They can't help us. The only way to true success, as we read in Joshua 1.8, is when we look to God's word and we live in obedience to it. He says, won't you have success when you do what I say? When you listen to me? That's success. And security does not come from uncertain riches that make wings and fly away 
or where moth and dust corrupt, where thieves can break in and steal, but when our treasure is laid up in heaven. Because he says where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And we can know where our hearts are at based upon our desires, our affections, and our favorite activities. You say, well, where is my heart today? Is it focused on things of the earth or with things concerning the Lord and everlasting eternal riches? God desires humility, a broken heart, obedience. That's what he treasures and values. And you'll be rewarded for that now and in heaven. So we have in our scriptures today, Paul and Barnabas, these are guys who, they're stirring examples of people just sold out to spread the gospel, just to have people who've never heard of Jesus hear of him and walk through that open door of faith, reaching these unreached Gentiles. People are toiling to to secure wealth and prosperity for themselves, but these men, they work, and then they go, according to the Holy Spirit, and they begin to, to spread the gospel through Cyprus and to Asia Minor. They're laboring to win souls for the kingdom of heaven. And, and it, I was struck this week with the thought, we set a time work for, for play. We set a time, we set aside time for work. But do we set apart time to seek the Lord and to share the gospel with others? We set aside time for that too, because that's important. Um, and we begin to follow the progress of these men, Paul and Barnabas in Asia Minor in Acts 14, verse 8. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. They had just come from Iconium, Paul and Barnabas. There was this plot to abuse and to stone them. And so they went the 32 Ks south to Lystra, which is also in the, it's still in the region of Galatia. There's no mention of a Jewish synagogue in Lystra, and our text begins with Paul addressing the multitudes, and he's addressing people of the city, and as he's speaking, there's this crippled man, whom we're told had not walked ever in his life, and he was listening really intently. And Paul, through the Holy Spirit, he he has discernment about this man, that he has faith to be healed. And it's, it's a bit similar situation to where Peter, remember in Acts chapter 3, is going up to the temple, and there's that crippled man who'd never walked in his life, and Peter uh, sees him and says, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And he, he takes him by the hand and lifts him up. Well, in this case, Paul just says with a loud voice, stand up and walk. And the man stands up on his feet. Miraculously, this guy who's never walked before, he's leaping and walking around. You know, there's people everywhere, unbelievers too, who hope for a miracle. People who don't believe in miracles hope for a miracle. that, And they're willing to pay or do anything to have physical healing. That's something we really value. We want good health. There's no pow- pattern or formula to invoke the power of the Spirit. But one thing we see that's common in the New Testament is the gospel preceded the miracles. It wasn't like Jesus used miracles to get his foot in the door to get people's attention and then give them the gospel. No, he gave them the gospel and then he did miracles to confirm the words and his claims of divinity where he says, I am God. I'm the one that the Father has sent. Um, and and then the, the miracles would confirm that, those signs and wonders. Like when he raised Lazarus from the dead, he says, Lord, I know that you hear me, but I'm saying this for the people listening. 
you know, God's responding to me, you know, Lazarus, come forth. And he came out, grave clothes and all. Often our desire for miraculous healing, and you can think for yourself what, what would motivate you for, to desire miraculous healing for yourself or for someone else. Usually, it's not founded on the truth of the gospel or the glory of God. I'll just say bluntly for myself. Usually it's because I want to feel better or I want someone else to feel better. It's not because I want them to... Uh, it's not The gospel really doesn't have... It's not in the picture quite often. And... And I thought, well, could it be that it's really a lack of belief in the gospel or the Holy Spirit that we desire God to do a healing because we think through the healing, they will listen. That they're not going to listen, but if they see this sign, then they will. But remember when Jesus healed 10 lepers, what happened? Well, they were all miraculously healed at his word. Only one return to give thanks to him. Only one return to acknowledge that the healing had taken place from this deadly disease of leprosy, whereas nine Jews, they just went on their way. Unmoved. Their bodies were changed, but their hearts were not moved to even fall before the Lord or just to shake his hand and say, thank you. Hmm. Based upon the testimony of the word, I firmly believe that Jesus does heal today. I believe it is his will to heal, to heal souls, to restore lives, to uh, do miraculous things in the lives of people. I've witnessed that myself. I've seen people healed. But the Bible provides a far more comprehensive testimony. So even if I had never seen a person healed in my presence, I can say, this is what God does. He is a healer. He does transform. And the word of God has power to change lives. And if we value physical healing, well, shouldn't we also value more the saving of souls and the forgiveness of sins and the new life that we're given every day in following Christ? Verse 11. Now, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. When the people see this miracle, this crippled man from birth jumped to his feet, they just saw the evidence of the divine among them. They're like, oh, the gods have come down from heaven to be with us. And um, Barnabas is called Zeus and Paul Hermes. According to Greek mythology, now in Roman mythology, their names were Jupiter and Mercury. Perhaps since it's Acts, Acts was written in Greek, their Greek names were used. But there's a little historical background that's quite interesting in this passage. There was a Roman poet named Ovid. He had written a poem called Metamorphoses in 8 AD. It was very popular, and he had spent a great deal of time in Asia Minor. In that poem, there's a couple named Philemon or Philemon and Bossus. And they were this old elderly couple. And Zeus and Hermes had come down disguised among them. And they sought refuge and hospitality. And everywhere they went in this city, people just pushed them aside. But this elderly couple, poor though they were, they bring them in. And they're whining and dining them. They're sparing no expense. You know, they're pulling down the bacon. You know, the table's a little uneven, so she takes a piece of pottery and puts it under there to level it for them, and just being very thoughtful for these these uh, foreigners and travelers. And 
And as they're, they're eating and drinking, they notice they're drinking a lot of wine, but the wine, which they haven't refilled, the bowls just start filling. So from this miracle, they throw up their hands and go, oh, the gods have come. And, and the gods say, yeah, you guys have been cool to us, and I'm totally paraphrasing. You guys have been totally cool with us. We like you guys. We'll let you off the hook, but everybody here around is going to die because they did not lend us a hand. So everyone dies, and then their house is turned into a temple, and the gods say, hey, what do, what do you want us to do for you? And they said, well, would love to be keepers of your temple, and if when, we, when it's time for us to go, that we'd go at the same time. We wouldn't have to be alive without one another. Okay, done. So then as their days drew to an end, they, they turned into trees, and people would come and hang garlands and, and uh, wreaths, which were thanks and remembrance. And at the end of the poem, this is what it says. It says, those whom the gods care for are gods. And those who worshipped are now worshipped here. So what's the moral of the story? Well, if you reverence the gods, if you give to the gods, you too can be a god. If you reverence the god, you too can be worshipped and venerated and remembered well. People will come to you and hold you in high esteem. That's still in the hearts of people today. That desire to be reverenced, to, to have security. And he says, I saw these two trees and they had this little wall around them that know right on. So in light of this context, this backdrop, seeing that the temple of Zeus is predominantly placed at the front of the city, when they see this miraculous thing, they're like, the gods are among us. Zeus and Hermes, it's here. And, and uh, in the poem, the old couple, when they realize that they this uh, the gods were among them, they ran to catch their guard goose. You guys ever been around a goose that's a little aggressive? Those are very effective deterrents. When I was a kid and my, my grandfather had a couple of geese, you know, the honking kind, they, they were like as tall as me in those days. If the ball went into their pen, I was not going in there. Grandpa had to go in here. He's kind of, hey, get out of the way and get the, get the ball and throw it back and so they, they tried to catch this guard goose, but the goose was, it was their most prized possession. They were too slow and old. So, uh, it, it was alright. He's like, well, at least you tried. Um, but this, the, the priest of Zeus, he brings out oxen as a sacrifice with garlands and wreaths of thanksgiving. Multitudes of people had gathered. They're all gazing in wonder at what had happened. And this, this had been done by God, but they were attributing it to Zeus and Hermes, to these false mythological gods. See what the apostles did in verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out, saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. The apostles see the intentions of the people to offer these oxen a sacrifice. They run among them. So they are pretty... Uh, concerned, right? They're tearing their clothes. It's a sign of grief and mourning and expression of humility 
and, and it can even be anger, but in this case it was just grief. To tear your clothes, it would be a costly thing to replace and repair. Usually you didn't have a lot of clothes. You'd say, oh, I'll just get another shirt. So it was, in that culture, a very significant thing to do. It got people's attention. They refused to receive any worship, and they didn't want the credit for this going to some false god when it was Jesus who had done it. It was not Paul or Barnabas. And they just say, why are you doing these things? And notice they speak to them a bit differently than how they spoke to the Jews in the synagogue. They say, the the things that you guys are doing, it's useless. You're serving useless gods. Turn to the living God who's made everything, and he hasn't been without a witness. And he doesn't go to the scripture, but he goes to the blessings that they receive. He says, he's given you good food. He's given you rain in season. All these things are a gift from God. It's not from your mythological gods. It's from the living God. Turn to him. Give credit to whom credit is due. Rain, fruitful seasons, food and gladness, and and these gifts and many more. They are witnesses of God. And um, God, it says, always permitted men to walk in their own ways. But the revelation of Jesus Christ ushered in a new era of accountability before God. Throughout all history, Gentiles were required to walk, so even without the law of God, they were responsible to walk in the light of God's revelation in nature, according to the light of their conscience, and according to the laws that God had ordained and the governments he instituted. Okay, They were responsible for these things. They would be held accountable to God for them. God was very patient and long-suffering through their idolatrous ways. Now, Paul, he later says in Acts 17, 30 through 31, he says, truly, this is when he's speaking to the philosophers in Athens. He says, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So men will always be judged for their sin, even in the Old Testament. And the Gentiles who did not have the scriptures, they were still judged according to the law, um, the law that was on the written upon their hearts. But since Jesus has come and this testimony of his resurrection, now all men are required to be held accountable to their response to him and their belief in him or their rejection of him. So the the resurrection of Jesus Christ for believers is proof of his power over sin and death. And to the unbeliever, it's proof of coming judgment, that he will judge the world for sin. So they're strongly pleading with the people. They're saying, hey, turn from these useless idols, uh, serve the living God. And he's given witness of his reality all the time. And it says they, they scarcely kept them from doing it. It was very difficult. I can just see him just knocking the the knife out of the guy's hand where he's like coming forward, you know, Uh, like it was really difficult to stop them, but disaster was averted, albeit temporarily. Uh, Verse 19, then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, 
exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Here's a really big surprise, right? They've just had this man healed. They're about to sacrifice to them as gods. The gods have come down. And the very next verse, Jews came from Antioch. Now that's about 160 Ks away. And from Iconium, the place they had just fled from. The Jews come, they stir up the multitudes, and they stone Paul until they think he's dead, and they drag him out of the city. This is not the response that one would expect after that miraculous healing was performed. Hmm? Right? We think, oh, if they're healed, they believe. <laughs> there was a healing, and there was a stoning. <laughs> they stoned him and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. Now, the Bible does not expressly say if he was dead, but I'm thinking he was certainly unconscious, and what happens next was a miraculous recovery, regardless. Because if you are knocked insensible with large stones to the point where people believed you were dead, um, you would be carried to the hospital under normal... The disciples surrounded him. He stood up and walked on his own accord back into the city. Not like, oh, let's help him, kind of. He just walked back. Wow, that's pretty miraculous, right? There's another healing that happened. Um, They say we have that fight or flight instinct. Well, for Paul, it wasn't fight or flight. It was continuance in the faith. He continued doing what he did. He went right back into the city. And what a testimony. I I had a bit of a Nebuchadnezzar moment when I was reading these verses. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace? And as they're in there, he's like, hold on. Didn't we throw just three in there? I see a fourth. They're all unbound and and he's like unto the Son of God. Well, the text tells us that only Paul and Barnabas went into Lystra, right? Yet when Paul was left for dead outside the city, it says disciples gathered around him. Disciples. Only two disciples had gone in, and then there's disciples. I was like, wow, that is so cool. More than Barnabas. It's clear between the time of their arrival, the stoning by Paul, of Paul, they had made disciples of Jesus, people who were willing to stand around their fallen brother to see him restored, to identify with them in spite of the persecution that had just occurred. It's like, wow, the power of the gospel to change people, to bring belief into hearts. Jesus commanded his followers to go and make disciples of nations, not just converts. To convert is to turn or to revert. But in this case, the gospel and the Holy Spirit, when we're changed inside, we're given the strength to follow Jesus, whatever lies before us. So the day after being stoned, Paul and Barnabas, it says they left for Derby, some 48 Ks away. It says they preached the gospel and made disciples of Jesus in the city and then returned to Lystra, where the stoning had taken place, Iconium, where they had fled because there was a plot to abuse and stone them, and then Antioch, where the Jews came from who who stirred up the people to stone them. So it's like, wow. It wasn't just to thumb their nose at the people who, uh, like, see, we're still around. They haven't driven us off. No, it was to visit the disciples that had been made and to appoint elders in each city. It's quite a bold move, though. 
in the face of this persecution, very bold. I like Proverbs 28.1. It says, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Verse 22, it says, as they traveled, they went about strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Now, Paul isn't with us presently, and we're not able to see the wounds that he bore in sharing Christ, but let's be encouraged as if he is here today, as if he had just been stoned and he chose on his own uh, volition to come back into the city and to tell us and rehearse with us the things that God had done in through and through him. Let's be encouraged to take the message to heart. Let's be strengthened as those believers were to continue in the faith in this, in spite of persecution, because we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. The path to eternal glory, the path to eternal security and comfort, is not through the worship and sacrifice to false gods, but to follow our Savior who endured countless tribulations to demonstrate his love for us, culminating on the cross. He overcame them all. And we have overcome through the blood of the Lamb, what does it take to make you quit? I mean, would, would stoning kind of be where you draw the line? Speaking for myself, um, there was probably a day when, when I thought, you know, I would be bold if the gun was put to my head. I would be bold if the stones were, were bouncing off my head. Um, like, if, if it really counted, I would rise to the occasion. But I've seen that that's a lie. That's not true. Paul was not emboldened because he had his head clubbed with stones. That's not what, that's not what drove him on. It's like, there's people that oppose me, and so I'm going to oppose them. No, it was following Jesus Christ and trusting him. It revealed his commitment and his faith in God as genuine when he persevered when the trials came and the person's persecutions came and then he exhorted the believers to continue steadfastly in the faith he's like keep going guys keep going this is the way that god's made for us there's a lot of tribulations yes but let's persevere it's better to admit that we are weak and pathetic and lame like that man who had never walked before so that we might be strengthened by god in faith to leap to our feet and do something that we've never done before to have boldness and courage to share the gospel in a way that we've never been comfortable or dreamed of doing. That's where we need to be. Not as the, the lukewarm church that was, that thought themselves as having no need at all. Like, oh, we're rich. We're fine. We're blessed. We have need of nothing. And God's like, but I know you and I see you. And you don't know that you're blind and wretched and naked. Come to me and buy those, those garments, white garments, and put that eye salve on your eyes so you can see. I have been that man. I have been that man without the faith to believe. I've trusted Christ, but I identify with that man. Or it's like, but, but I, don't, I'm not, I don't even measure up to his standard. 
because he was looking intently. He's like, all right, he was hungry to walk. Are we hungry to share the gospel? Are we hungry to endure through persecution for the sake of Jesus Christ and all he's done for us? I have looked at my failures and said, see, I can't do anything. But will we, like that lame man, say, through Jesus Christ, I can do all things who strengthens me? So fellow followers of Jesus, we are heading to heaven. The road stretches before us. There will be tribulation. There will be uh, many tribulations, it says. And that word means pressure, anguish, persecution, or trouble. You ever felt pressure? A bit of pressure. It's like putting it lightly. Well, it's fitting that Gethsemane preceded Calvary because Gethsemane means oil press, where Jesus shed uh, sweat. He, he sweated tears of... Oh, man, I'm really butchering that. He, uh, he sweat drops of blood in his fervency to cry out to God and to say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. See, we have a will, don't we? It's our will and God's will. And often they can be opposed to one another. But it's good when we yield our will and say, not my will, Lord, but your will be done in submission to him. Every step that Jesus took, it was heading towards the cross. He kept going that way, not just to the cross, but because he looked beyond it. The eternal glory that would come and the great fruitfulness that would come from his sacrifice and his shed blood. The souls of many who have trusted in him. Could we turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9? And I read a portion of this last week, but it just keeps coming back. So I figure we'll just read through it once more. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Praise the Lord for his abundant mercy and that we have this living hope. It's genuine. It's real. It's so tangible. This week it was reported that there was a 104-year-old Australian professor and doctor who went to Switzerland to seek assisted suicide. He had tried three times to take his own life unsuccessfully and ended up going there um, because of their uh, euthanasia laws. And he just said, I no no longer want to continue life, was a quote. 
He had no belief in afterlife, and I, I think many people share his, his views. But as Christians who are born again through faith in Jesus, we have a living hope in heaven that spurns us on to keep living now for God. And sometimes we can forget about the future that God has in store for us because of the great trials and tribulations that we are facing, that we deal with, the pressures of this life. It's true that our bodies keep wearing down as we grow older, and following Jesus does bring pressure and tribulation. But we have such inexpressible joy, the scripture says, we have this joy when we fix our eyes on Jesus and the eternal future he's prepared for us to spend with him. So with every dawning day, we have an opportunity to praise God, to thank him, to, um, in the middle of pain and trouble, to thank him voluntarily. Say, Lord, I could be angry right now. And you know, in my flesh, maybe I want to be, but I rejoice to praise you and thank you for giving me another day to you and to be used by you in some way. I mean, selfishly, we all want to be in heaven right now. If you think about how great heaven is, to be free of the, the fetters of the flesh and the, the troubles. We're like, get me out of here, God. Like kind of escaping everything. But God, he is sovereign and he has us here. And while we're here, we're to be filled with that inexpressible joy and hope that we have now through Jesus, not just which is afar off in some, some other time or place. It's Christ's love. And his sacrifice that compels us to keep loving him and living for him every day. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, it says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. People lose heart when they cannot do something anymore. That man lost heart because he was having a hard time walking and a hard time seeing, hard time hearing. Um, Yeah, it is sad when you lose the ability to play a sport or to do something that you love to do. Uh, When when you can't drive anymore, you can't even remember something. Right, it, these things begin to wear on you, and and factor in illnesses and things that are happening in other people's lives. Trouble seems inescapable. We don't lose heart because God has given us new hearts, and He has put joy in there, and He's given us a hope that doesn't fade away, reserved for us. It's like that heavenly booking that you've made through trusting in Jesus. It's there, and nothing can shake it. Our greatest tribulations, the things which seem to work against us, and if you said that's the thing that's working against me the most, they are light afflictions that are actually working for us, the scripture says. The troubles that we're enduring now, they only provide more strength and heavenly reward as we walk in God's way in the midst of them. And it proves our faith genuine, which gives us great uh, joy. In our living today, let's do so in the light of eternity. If we look at the things that are perishing, we will lose heart. If we look at our own perishing frame, we will lose heart. If we look at all the things that we can no longer do that we once loved, we will lose heart. But if we focus upon Christ and the future that he has for us 
and the life that he wants us to live now. I mean, just, just envision Paul's battered but joyful face, that body that was ripped apart, and he says, guys, keep going. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Acts 14, verse 23. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had commended, had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. They traveled back to many cities that they had already visited and to other ones as well. And they appointed elders in every church. And the role of an elder, it's a pastoral one that's described in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. Men of godly character who were overseers of ministry uh, had a good reputation both inside and outside the church. And these leaders were appointed with prayer and fasting. So they sought God. They weren't just choosing people that are like, oh yeah, these guys are, we know them, they're cool. But who are the people that God wants to be in leadership? And they sought the Lord and he, he showed them the ones. After a year or two of being sent out, this first missionary journey came to an end. So it was about a year or two. And I have a slide that shows the path of their travels, um, which will be up there at some point. They covered hundreds of miles by land and sea. So today we were in Lystra, uh, number seven, and then Derby, down back through Pamphylia, Perga, and then all the way to Antioch where they began. They did this without an itinerary. We don't really, there's no mention of, all right, we're going to go here, we're going to go there. I mean, we, we kind of book our flights, and we, they didn't have those sort of things back then. As far as a return trip, I mean, how, how can that even happen when you're being arrested, as we'll see in future missionary trips that Paul took. All along the way, God was working with them and through them. And uh, God directed and provided for them. How it is how it's important for us who aspire to do a work for God to surrender to the grace of God and the work He will bring to completion because it was God who brought them safely home. And I was really struck as I was opening my Bible and I was looking at the... Uh, the missionary trips, missionary journeys of Paul, which you could probably find, they're all pretty much return trips except the fourth. It's fairly linear, and it just goes to Rome. But that's the one where he actually went home at the end of it. You're like, God had him. God had him protected. And and yeah, he, he wasn't able to go round trip, return trip, but he was able to go through and into glory at the end of that one. So how awesome. God God didn't forsake him. God didn't forget about him. God brings us to his intended end, and it's a glorious one. It is glorious. The gospel didn't spread because of the efforts of men, but because of the grace of God. People were not healed as a reward for Paul or Barnabas' piety or their prayers, but by God's grace. Disciples were made and elders appointed, not because of the wisdom or the good teaching of Barnabas and Paul, but by God's grace. 
The same is true for the work that God's doing right here. It's not, be, it's not by might, not by power, but by His Spirit and by His grace that He will cause us to be fruitful individually and as a body. It's by God's grace that we have all those blessings. He is working. So let's not lose heart. He has an intended end that's a glorious one, and we can trust him. Acts 14, 27. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. When they returned to Antioch, they reported all that God had done with them. They spoke of Elymas the sorcerer and the proconsul who came to faith. And they rehearsed the events in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, the healing of the crippled man, and how Paul was, was uh, savaged on that day with stones, and uh, how those believers in Antioch must have rejoiced to have heard it, where they were the ones who the Holy Spirit said, set apart these men to go do the work that I've called them to. And then we see the work brought to an end. It's all right, that trip is finished. And God had many more trips, but they rejoiced in what God had done, and they rehearsed it with one another. And what a joy to, to know that God is working, not just here, but he's working out there, and he's opening a door of faith to the Gentiles, people who were without hope, who were cut off from God. Now there's salvation for them. And how excited people must have been as they saw the man who bore the marks of a stoning to see the joy of the Lord coming from that face. Believer, do you rejoice that God has opened the door of faith to you? He's opened a way for life and an abundant one. Do you rejoice that he's opened that door of faith to others as well? And what will you do to lead them through that door? May the words that we've read today, they just pierce our hearts to the end that we would be strengthened in soul, we would rejoice joyfully and receive that exhortation and acknowledge we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. What part of that phrase stands out to you? Is it like we must go through tribulation? Like, oh no. Or it's like we get to enter the kingdom of God. Oh yes. What side are you going to focus on? Your glorious entry? Or if need be, that you would be tried with tribulations? The first step for all of us is to pass through that door of faith. God has opened a door of faith. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. He is the door. He is the gate. It's through him that we enter. And once entered, having entered in that gate, know that there are open doors for you to walk through in faith as you have your pilgrimage along in this life. And there are, there are places that God wants you to go. And there's people to whom he's ordained for you to speak to and to serve in a loving way and to be kind and compassionate towards them. And you know, like that lame man who listened intently to that message and he leaped to his feet by faith in God, may we too receive strength to leap to our feet and do the things that God's called us to. To, to walk through doors that we've only looked at or had to be carried through, by God's grace, we can walk through them because we are strengthened in God to do so. Do you, are you willing to identify with that man on some level? 
that lame man, crippled from birth? Are you willing to identify with him in some area of your life to say, I believe God is going to do, by his grace, in my life something I've never experienced before, to use me in a way I've never been used before, to be strengthened, to do something I, I've never dreamed of doing before. I've given up hope. That man, he, he had... He, there was no hope for him to walk by the doctors. He never walked. But he walked that day. And so did Paul the next after being stoned. So may God minister. May he strengthen us to persevere. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are so good to us. You are so gracious. Thank you for the testimony, Lord, of your saints who have gone before us and who have walk through that door of faith and who have led others to walk through that door of faith. And may we be uh, like them. And uh, like that man who is listening intently, Lord, please stir our conscience, stir our hearts to believe your word, to believe in the power of the gospel, to change and to transform, to enable us to persevere, that whether the rocks are coming down upon us or we are rehearsing the uh, the glorious gospel and, and how you have worked with us, Lord, I pray that we would rejoice and that we'd be strengthened and encouraged as we follow you. Lord, thank you that you do all things well and you have such good plans for us. I pray that we wouldn't, in seeking your plan, forget to seek you and that we'd seek your face and rejoice in your salvation in Jesus' name. Amen.